Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, why are so many big-name musicians selling the rights to their songs? Who's buying them and why? We find out. Why those big inflation numbers we're seeing this month may be explained by just a few factors. But first, we find out more about the search for answers at the site of a former residential school in Williams Lake in Central BC and the results of a preliminary search for unmarked graves. Begin tonight in Williams Lake at the Williams Lake First Nation in central interior of BC, where the results of a preliminary geophysical search of the former grounds of St. Joseph's Mission Residential School were released today. The school building is gone, torn down, the buildings on the grounds, but they still cast a very long shadow on the community, as we found out again today. Here is lead investigator Whitney Spearing. To date, 93 reflections have been recorded at the St. Joseph's Mission. All of them display varying characteristics indicative of potential human burials. 93, potentially 93 children found there. We won't know. More work has to be done. They have been using uh, ground-penetrating radar, Spearing says, as well as aerial and terrestrial light detection and ranging. Chief William Sellers of the Williams Lake First Nation also spoke at that same press conference uh, today. Um, that school remained open for 90 years. The St. Joseph's Re- Mission Residential School was opened by the Roman Catholic Church back in uh, 1891. Um, again, Chief Sellers spoke today. He Only a small section of, uh, of where the school grounds has been explored, 14 of some 470 hectares. More work again will need to be done to confirm those initial findings. But interviews were also done with the many survivors in different communities, survivors of the mission school, which operated again for nearly a century. It also suggests that many children who attended the school remain unaccounted for to this day. Here is Chief Sellers. At St. Joseph's Mission, survivor stories tell us that many children will remain unaccounted for even after our geophysical and archival work is complete. Their bodies were cast into the river, left at the bottom of lakes, tossed like garbage into incinerators. Some very powerful words there from Chief Sellers today. Again, more work needs to be done, as he pointed out. And he also says, again, the search for answers is only beginning. Today we have commitment from federal and provincial governments that the investigation into the St. Joseph's Mission will continue through the Williams Lake First Nation, and this is a critical milestone in our path toward reconciliation. Well, we're just 25 days into this new year, but this revelation comes on the heels of those discoveries made in 2021, including of 215 suspected unmarked graves on the site of a former residential school in Kamloops, BC, not that far from Williams Lake, really and more than 700 unmarked graves found at the site of the former Maryvale Indian Residential School on the Cowessess First Nation in Saskatchewan. Well, joining me now to look into this is Nigan James Sinclair. He's a professor of Native Studies at the University of Manitoba. Thanks for being here tonight. Yeah, Bushu. Uh, thanks for having me. You know, I noticed I, I noticed you posted something very short on social media today, but, but it was very telling. And I, I just wondered what you said and why it was important to send that specific message to the people of Williams Lake today. Well, I just sent out a message to all survivors and, uh, you know, intergenerational survivors as well. You know, those of us, uh, every single Indigenous person, uh, including myself, have members of our families that went to residential school who witnessed the atrocities that happened in those places. And even when the situations were 
not open physical and sexual abuse. There was open starvation, disease, uh, and then chronic work that bordered on slavery. And having that trauma in our families and our communities on a day like this, when there is the uncovery of more sites at residential school sites, we are looking at over 7,000 burial spaces that have never been uh, marked until very recently across both Canada and the United States at residential school and boarding school sites. So this is a very serious issue and it's very triggering. So we have to be uh, very careful to move forward uh, thinking of survivors and intergenerational survivors. And it's a time of sensitivity and it's a time of listening. And it's a time that we really want to try to give people um, a place in which their stories will be heard in a meaningful, kind and generous way, but at the same time also take action on what do, what do we do now, now that we know the truth, because reconciliation is a much harder journey than the truth. It's all, you know, even when, when trying to, to sort of introduce what happened today, it's always difficult because it didn't feel like, like, like the release of a report. It felt like something much more profound. Um, what did you make? I mean, I, I don't, I think people may have been expecting something like what was announced today to be announced, but what did you make of, of the findings, the preliminary findings? Well, for those of us in the community, um, you know, in research and, in Indigenous studies so on throughout the country. We know about this. We've been talking about this for decades. Every single Indigenous community has a story of lost children. And the children who went to the schools never returned home, the sisters and brothers who disappeared while trying to get home. And of course, we can't forget that there were many children who were born at the schools uh, due to the uh, rampant sexual abuse and other behaviors that took place at the schools. And so many children uh, upon being born were also uh, murdered in those places as well. So <clears throat> these are very hard things to talk about. And they're very um they're very hard to unveil. You know, it takes a lot of care and consideration for how First Nations will release this information because they don't want it to be in a news cycle uh, where people just simply forget 24 hours from now. It needs to accompany ceremony. It needs to accompany, uh, you know, the the guiding word of elders and knowledge keepers who can show it the sensitivity and the care. And we are talking about the lives of children. Many of those children who didn't return home and those who never had a voice, we need to give them a voice. You know, at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission national events, every event had uh, empty chairs on stage to honor those children that people knew about who were lost. And now we are beginning to find where they are, where did they end up and, and the stories that still have yet to be told about what happened to them. Chief Sellers today of the uh, Williams Lake First Nation referred to it as a reawakening, which was an interesting choice of words, I thought. Um, and he said, quote, this reawakening has allowed us to start the process of healing. Uh, how do you interpret those words? Yeah, I think when Chief Sellers is talking about that, he's really talking about uh, it, Canadians awakening to this story, but also for many of us who know about this story, it's a reopening of the feelings and the um, experiences that we know are true and that we've heard growing up and we've heard in our communities. And I think for many Canadians, this might be new information. And so it can be very upsetting as well and very understandably so that Canadians may be for one of the very first times in their life hearing about the atrocities in residential schools firsthand, hearing from the very survivors that then uh, experience these atrocities, these horrendous things that we can only imagine in countries like Rwanda, Nazi Germany and South Africa, but yet happened right here 
in Canada. And so Canadians may be upset tonight and they may be wondering, what do I do now with these feelings? And it's okay to have those feelings. It's okay to, to, to acknowledge them and it's okay to honor them and, and to stand with your Indigenous brothers and sisters during this time of mourning. But it's important not to stay in sadness. It's important to, to look to your own children and think uh, empathically, of course, what would I do if this happened to my own children? What would I do to make sure this would never happen to any child in this country? And most importantly, to if it did happen and uh, to children that I knew or that my children witnessed, how could I show that sensitivity to the children that I know uh, that could give them a place in which they could share their story and they could be heard? And then they could be stood beside while we work together to find some healing. I think every Canadian has a responsibility to think about what action they can take within their own life beyond just hearing the story of what can they do to be able to evoke and create some sense of healing for Williams Lake, for Cowessis, for um, First Nations all across the country that are uncovering these burial spaces within their communities, often right next door or just down the road uh, where they sent their children. I was going to ask you that. I mean, we, uh, you know, the impact of the Kamloops um, Residential School Discovery, you know, discovery last last spring had a huge impact. Um, the Cowess's First Nation uh, discovery also had a huge impact. Now we're just a few days into 2022, and there's another example reminding us of the of the of the awful legacy of residential schools in this country. How do how do you how do you make sense of the of the three things that we've and you've mentioned? We're going to hear about this again. This is going to happen. How does one? How do you recommend reconciling yeah, let's these not stories? Forget. Yeah. I mean, let's not forget that the research that was done at Williams Lake was only 14 out of a 470 hectares of land that, right, they, of course. that they identified as areas of interest. So we are looking at yet another 450 hectares that may have other burial spaces or unmarked burial spaces. And we know that residential schools most oftentimes had so much death at times that they may not have marked or they may not have recorded or in some cases just outright neglected and hidden, covered up those deaths. So we may have more stories yet to come. And, and if you're asking, you know, how, how do we begin to move forward? How do we begin to, uh, to evoke some kind of sense of change? Well, this listening exercise that we've been doing for about a decade now, uh, as, a, as a country, I mean, of course, as I mentioned, Indigenous peoples have been telling these stories for decades upon decades upon decades. We can't forget that the very first person in 1990 was Phil Fontaine to come out and talk about the sexual and physical abuse that happened in schools. And he was met with absolute derision and people denying his experiences. And since Kamloops, we've also seen a, a certain measure of people that have denied the experiences of residential school survivors, said things like they're looking for money or looking for some kind of sense of compensation. I can tell you that survivors are not looking for those things. What they are is they are looking to be heard. They're also looking to be understood of the experiences that they had growing up. And then most importantly, we need to bring these children home. And so what can Canadians do? Well, I think the first thing Canadians can do is listen. And then second is talk with your own children. I've always said that teaching your children is the most important act of reconciliation. Talking to your children, you might often find that your children are more prepared for these discussions than everyday Canadians, because I find teachers to be some of the most innovative and progressive people in the country. But then what you'll find is that you want to do something and you may be a fundraising activity. It may be an activist. Uh, it may be creating information on social media and sharing that with those who would otherwise not be uh, aware or 
interested or those every single Canadian was impacted by the schools because while indigenous peoples were put in the schools and suffered tremendous abuses, Canadians were taught that all of that was normal and that Canadians were taught that that residential schools was an essential part of civilizing indigenous peoples. And so Canadians benefited greatly from those schools. They are on lands now that have been taken from First Nations that experienced that tremendous abuse and violence. So in many cases were um, put hammered into a sense of hopelessness and addictions that we see today. Uh, Canadians have benefited from a legacy in which Indigenous peoples have been taught to be ashamed of themselves, and Canadians now are benefiting from a legacy in which we uh, we live in a country in which we see a whole ton of poverty and uh, Indigenous peoples hammered into very uh, difficult situations, and uh, Canadians are taught that, well, that's just fine, that just happens every day, or or we'll get to that problem eventually, and that's not acceptable any further. That's not acceptable to talk about a place in which so many people, uh, especially the founding nations of this country, are suffering so innately, and that Canadians are profiting so deeply off Indigenous lands and resources. It's just unacceptable. So Canadians may want to take some action in that, and standing beside survivors listening to them and then taking action to be able to change this horrible dynamic that we have in the country will be a good, good step um, from this time. We're speaking with Nigan James Sinclair, Professor of Native Studies at the University of Manitoba tonight about a preliminary investigation of the former grounds of St. Joseph's Mission Residential School in Williams Lake, BC, released today, uncovery of about 93 possible burial sites. Uh, one thing that came up that I found interesting today was the investigator spoke of um, of being optimistic about a decision last week to release more documents to the National, uh, to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um about what had happened because they don't have enough records, apparently. They don't have the records they need. And I was wondering how much of a problem that has been and how close we are to trying to at least solve that aspect of uh, of uncovering these truths. So most of the, because so it's such a large bulk of the residential schools are run by Catholic entities, uh, the federal government has specific third-party agreements with certain Catholic churches to not release agreements due to issues of privacy they've claimed for years. So what's happened is that there is narratives of schools, school records, employment records, everything from school registries and so on that has been really kept from residential school survivors because the Catholic entities, most of them Catholic, have claimed uh, issues of privacy. There's also been federal government departments that have claimed similar things, uh, like the Department of Agriculture, for example, because we can't forget where did these children run to most oftentimes farms uh, and were found on farms when they were running away from the schools or police reports similarly, or, you know, other department reports, health reports, and so on. So what's happened is about 750,000 documents were released last week for the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, which is right here in Winnipeg. And so what's hoped is that in those records, there'll be some recordings of names of people who didn't come home or what happened to them at the schools. And particularly, there may also be access to uh, information around people who can also try to shed light on information around people who were lost at those schools as well. And and it's not just about that too, but documenting more fully the history of schools in some cases that we know very little about. Well, a story that's just continuing to unfold. Again, James Sinclair, thanks so much for your time tonight and your insight on this issue. Yeah, miigwech. Thanks so much for having me. Again, James Sinclair, Professor of Native Studies at the University of Manitoba, joining us this evening. And a reminder to listeners, the Indian Residential Schools Crisis Line, one 925 
4419. That's 1-866-925-4419. It's available 24 hours a day for anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of their residential school experience. We know stories such as this one, the announcement that was made today, or at least what was revealed today can bring back uh, memories. And uh, there's always that uh, service available to you as well. And a quick uh, note before we go to our next break, um, St. Joseph's Mission Residential School was actually the same school uh, that Philip, Phyllis Webstad went to. You'll remember her from the Orange Shirt Day. That's the school she went to wearing that orange shirt when it was taken away. Um, and she released a statement today saying she'd often thought of this day um, and that today our truths, the truths we witnessed, the truths we've always known and told are brought to light once again, said Phyllis Webstad. <laughs> So to quote Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Joining me now is Serona Elton, a former record company executive and now director of the music industry program and associate dean of administration at the University of Miami's Frost School of Music. Serona, so good to have you tonight. So happy to be here with you. Thank you for having me. I, I guess we should start with the Bob Dylan deal because it was announced yesterday. It seems huge. Um, <laughs> and it's there was another Bob Dylan deal. So what's being sold and 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 why? Yeah, so that is such a great question and a great place to start with, because I think, you know, you read words like catalog, and people don't know what does that mean, right? So, so let's do a really quick, uh, a quick 101 on copyright and music copyright. So when you listen to a recording of Bob Dylan, what you actually have going on are two different kinds of copyrightable works. You actually have the song, the underlying song uh, that has a set of rights with it. And then separate from that, you have the actual audio recording. So you have songs, which are different from recordings. Both of those are different kinds of works protected by copyright law. And so you actually have a different owner, usually of the copyright in the song, as opposed to the owner in the copyright in the recording. And then sometimes those songs, particularly songs, might be owned by multiple parties. So you might have you know, four owners that each perhaps own 25% of that particular copyright in a song. And so we hear about sales of um, the publishing catalogs. That's a term you'll hear. And that's referring to the copyrights in the songs. And then sometimes you'll also hear about the sale of the recorded music catalog. And that's talking about the sales of the copyrights to the sound recordings. And I guess in this case, Bob Dylan has already sold both those things. That's right. Exactly. So back in December of 2020, um, the song side of things, the publishing catalog was sold to one of the big three companies in the music space called Universal Music Publishing Group um, for what was reported at about $300 million, I think. Um, that was the publishing side of, of things. And now he's just sold their recorded music rights to Sony for a, a sum, like you mentioned, it's um, been estimated, but often these amounts are uh, undisclosed. Right. So it begs the question, why? Why would you sell all of this, you know, essentially your life's work? 
because the market is very hot right now. <laughs> there are buyers willing to pay really big bucks and there are benefits to selling now rather than waiting. Um, you know, some of the same principles of any kind of property ownership um, apply here where if you, you have some kind of uh, something of value that people might want to buy. Um, you're always trying to gauge when the time is right to actually um, enter into a sale. And right now, the market is really hot and and really attractive to sellers. You compared it to to a red hot housing market where everyone's bidding each other up at one point, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, and <laughs> unfortunately, in the housing market, we've seen examples where it was a, a bubble <laughs> and then the bubble yeah. burst. Um, I, I think we're not expecting this to be a, a bubble, but there's there's a lot of, you know, um, sort of future gazing going on um, because whenever you buy something, right, it, it sounds complicated, but it's not. When you when you buy something of value, you're you're usually buying it because you think it's going to be worth more in the future. Um, when you might want to sell it and you know you, you've made that profit between what you bought it for and what you've sold it for. And so um, so it's the same thing with copyrights, uh, actually. And so right now, there's a lot of buyers in the marketplace with a deep, deep pockets um, who are uh, in the market and eagerly chasing after valuable copyrights and offering you know what some might call outrageous sums of money for them. I'm speaking with Sarona Elton, a former record company executive, now director of the Music Industry Program and Associate Dean of Administration at the University of Miami Frost School of Music. Um, I, I guess this this one of the things I was really curious about is how has the move to streaming um, changed sort of the equation for artists in, in this case? Yes, it's it's made a really big difference. Um, so the move to streaming, you could sometimes we describe it as a move from an, an ownership model to an access model. And let me be clear when I say ownership, because I'm not talking about copyright ownership, which is what we just talked about, but from a consumer perspective, right? You know, you and I may be similar in age, you know, we came up where you bought a record. You know, if you wanted control over what you were going to listen to, when you listened to it and you wanted to play it a zillion times, you would buy the record, whether whatever format that was in, you know, eight track, vinyl, cassette, CD, you bought it. It was an ownership model. And generally that meant though you bought it once. Um, now it might be each time a new type of format was introduced. So maybe you bought everything on vinyl and then came CDs and you decided you were going to go ahead and buy all your favorite music in CD form because, you know, you wanted a better, higher digital quality. But generally speaking, you know, especially once we got to the, the CD stage, you had that for life. You know, you weren't going to go buy another version of it. And for the next generation of people coming up behind you um, to discover Bob Dylan's music or Bruce Springsteen's music, they would have heard it on the radio or they would have had to decide to go and make that investment and buy a copy of that music. Well, streaming changes all of that because the way the streaming economics work, you can pay a monthly subscription or you can use some services that we call ad supported. So you're not paying a subscription, but you, you have to listen to some number of advertisements. 
you can do either of those approaches and have access to an almost limitless catalog. Which And what that means is, let's say you are a 20-year-old right now, you can go on to Spotify or Apple Music and you can check out all of the recordings by um, Bob Dylan without any financial investment. And so what you have are, you know, audiences continually discovering these really successful artists um, from, from yesteryear. A lot of these big catalog sales are of artists' music that's been around for a while. Um, and so there's this, this discovery that's really easy and feels free. Um, and these, these songs just keep generating year after year after year um, a certain amount of, of streaming activity now that, that, you know, you can see the track record for. I wanted to ask you, I mean, I guess the most fundamental question here is if I buy this, if I invest in these songs, how do I make money? Right. So, so you make money in a couple of ways. Um, you make money from uh, the revenue stream that comes to you on uh, even a monthly basis, actually. So let's say, um, let's say you <laughs> bought the Bob Dylan catalog. Let's pretend you were Sony. <laughs> what happens is that every month, services like Spotify and Apple Music and YouTube, um, all the different kinds of streaming services, audio and video all over the world, they pay royalties, what we call them. It's, just, it's revenue essentially for the permission uh, to have that music be available. They pay royalties to the owner of the song copyright and the owner of the recording copyright. And that money comes in every month. Um, and so you're, you're getting that cash flow if you're the copyright owner. Um, and then you also are getting the appreciation of that asset value. I know that sounds really financial, right? But you understand same thing with a house. You buy it at a certain price, it goes up in value. When you sell it down the road, now you are making you know the difference in in what you bought uh, what you bought it for. So they get revenue in, in both of those ways. We're speaking with Serona Elton about musicians selling the rights to their music. It's a big story these days. You just heard two of them into the break, Neil Young, out of the break, Shakira. So it begs the question, Serona, who are hot properties for their song rights and why? <laughs> well, um, so the one way you can look at that is what makes a song particularly attractive or, or a recording particularly attractive to an investor is one that has a proven track record, right? And so the in the music industry, we actually have some terminology where a, a brand new recording that is just put out there in the marketplace that has only been out there for 18 months or less, we call that a current recording. Um, and anything that's been out there in the marketplace for more than 18 months, we actually call catalog. Um, and so in terms of buying the copyrights in something, generally speaking, you were looking at catalog. So songs and recordings that have been in the marketplace at least 18 months. And generally you want something that's been out there for about five years or more, because then you can see now, now that that artist is not necessarily the hottest thing since, you know, sliced bread is not on all the morning talk shows, right? That what, what is the interest in that artist's music, even when it's been out there in the marketplace for a while? You know, the way it works in the record business is record labels do a lot of marketing right around the time that recording is first put into the marketplace. And then that marketing tapers off over time. And so if you're buying these copyrights, what you want to be able to do is get an accurate sense of how much money 
every single year, year over year, this recording or this song generates because that, that annual amount of money being generated, that's how you actually kind of calculate how much to spend on buying it. And so you need a number of years of revenue history to see is this, is this song, is this recording, you know, continuing to be listened to by people every single year, even when it's not brand new and being heavily marketed. That's that's fascinating. Uh, Who's buying? Because obviously, you know, Sony and Universal, and those are the big names that one recognizes. But I also see names I don't recognize (laughs) that that look like, you know, private equity investors, you know, people coming in a new crop of investors looking in to make money off uh, off the rights to these to these tunes. Yeah, well, they look like that because that's exactly what they are. Um, so you do have, I would say, sort of three kinds of buyers. Um, you have the the usual suspects who have been honestly buying and selling catalogs for a very long time. You know, you have three major record companies, sort of record groups, if you will: Sony Music Group, Warner Music Group, Universal Music Group, and those all have both a publishing division and a recording division. Um, and they are, you know, they are and have been very much in the the marketplace in terms of buying and selling copyrights. But what you also have now are you have another level of music company out there that are a bit smaller than those majors. Um, so some of those labels, you, you know, if you follow this stuff, <laughs> like BMG, uh, Reservoir, right. Concord, those are some names out there that are smaller than the major labels, but they are in this space now buying up stuff. And in many cases, those companies, those smaller music companies have actually partnered up with investment companies, whether it's, you know, institutional investors or, you know, um, funds, financial funds set up specifically for investing in music-related copyrights, um, they are out there in the marketplace, these smaller companies and those those ones you mentioned, like Hypnosis is a name you might have heard of, um, Iconic Artist Group, Harborview Equity Partners is you know one that just bought the Louis Fonsi catalog. Um, I think that was today. <laughs> um, wow. So yeah, there are new entrants into this space that are coming from the finance world. Um, but often, you know, again, if you remember, I was saying that you want to do this because you're going to make money on it, right? And one of the ways you make money on it is it keeps generating revenue every year. But that's if you are, you know, taking care of it. Copyrights actually need maintenance. They need, you know, tender, loving care <laughs> to make sure that they're being, they're, you know, being treated and protected properly and generating revenue. And so even when you have an investment company coming along who doesn't, you know, is not a music company and they're putting their money into these purchases, they then often, almost always, other than hypnosis, um, need to partner with an existing music company that's going to basically take care of or babysit those copyrights while they're continuing to go up in value. Because that was going to be my next question for you is that, I mean, as a music fan, as I am, and I'm sure you are, but you also know the business side of this. Is there anything, if you're a music fan, is there anything to be worried about when songs start to get bought up by, you know, the same people that own, that sort of buy and trade businesses and so on, that they become such a commodity that maybe it's just a romantics view that they're not already. (laughs) But is there anything, is there any downside to this, do you think? Well, you know, I don't think there's anything obvious at this point. But, you know, all of this is 
people are placing bets on what the future is going to look like. And these different companies, particularly these financial companies that you know are not mainly based in the music space, right? Music companies, they do a whole lot of things, including buying and selling catalogs and then making sure those catalogs generate revenue. So they're kind of in it for the long haul. But these, these newer entrants into this space, these finance companies... Um, you know, what, what none of us know is let's say something happens in the future. And, you know, for some reason, the, the revenue forecast is not as um, optimistic as it is right now. And they decide, you know, I want to get out of this space. I don't want to be in this space anymore. And they start selling off these, these catalogs. I don't know that any of us really know what would happen at that point. Um, my guess, and, and I'm, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, so I'll, I'll caveat this in every way. My guess, though, is that music companies would snatch those um, copyrights back from these finance companies um, and would stick with them, you know, for the long haul, realizing that the the music music industry overall has had ups and downs over time. Um, it's not all up for those of you who've been paying attention around the year 2000, 2000 till about 2015, the recorded music space was on a downward trajectory of revenue year over year, every year, down, down, down from 2000 to about 2015. And so, you know, music companies, a lot of them have been around (laughs) for decades. They know it's going to go up and down and they stay the course. Um, Whereas these finance companies, you know, they do tend to finance companies in general have a bit more of a reputation for, you know, get in, buy, get out, you know. So I don't really know if any of us know what what would happen if for some reason things didn't look as optimistic as they do now. In just a few words, are we going to see this continue? Are we going to see these catalogs continue to be sold off in the near future? Still hot, hot, hot? I think still hot, hot, hot. I think unless there's a change in the financial markets that, you know, um, undermine some of the tax benefits to um, artists and songwriters selling their, you know, their copyrights right now, because there are some tax benefits they're enjoying, you know, interest rates are really low. There's a a number of other sort of financial economic factors that are playing into this. Um, So if any of those were to change drastically, that could maybe slow things down. Um, But I think overall, the, the real reason that everybody's so excited is because music copyrights, both in the songs and the recordings, have proven to be sort of recession proof. Even when the economy is not looking good, people still listen to music. Um, And because they're paying for subscription or listening for, you know, in exchange for advertising ears, that doesn't be that behavior doesn't change when people lose their jobs. You know, look what happened with COVID and, and, and unemployment. People still listen. So I don't think it's going to change yeah. soon. Fascinating conversations thrown out. And thank you so much for shedding some light on this trend. Thank you so much for having me. Inflation had climbed in December to 4.8%. That hadn't been seen since way back in September of 1991, a mighty long time. And uh, the numbers said driving growth on the consumer price index were prices for groceries that had climbed year over year by 5.7%. That was the largest bump in a decade. So with numbers like that, it's obviously easy to start getting a bit worried about all that's going on. Well, to help demystify this inflation numbers a little bit is Trevor Toom. He's a professor of economics at the University of Calgary and the author of an article that I found highly interesting called Making Sense of High Inflation in Canada, Why Canadian Domestic Policy is Not Particularly Relevant to the problem. It's a great title, Trevor. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. 
You're most welcome. I mean, first and foremost, one of the things I found interesting about your article is you really kind of go break down what inflation is. And I think sometimes we get carried away with what it is and what it isn't. But within the confines of your article, you describe it really well. Well, thank you. And I, I think it is one of these concepts that sounds uh, pretty abstract. It's hard to really picture it. And it's a calculation that StatsCan puts out every month that gets a lot of attention, but we rarely ever really you know, open it up and see how it works or look under the hood, if you will. And I think that's particularly important now, given first how much attention the issue is getting and whether we should be uh, concerned with the high rates that we're seeing in Canada and indeed around the world. I mean, it's, it's when I think back, I mean, we haven't talked about inflation for years. And then suddenly sort of last summer, you know, around the pandemic, we started to start to come up again. The early assessment was that this might be quite short-lived, but I guess with Omicron and so on, we've seen an extend. Um, we're certainly we're certainly seeing inflation. It's just hard to describe exactly what we're seeing. It, we we certainly are seeing inflation. So my my uh, intent in the article is not to say that you know it's fake or the four point eight percent is not real or there's not scope for concern. It was really just to reveal what it is that's going on. And, and maybe I'll unpack that uh, a little bit. So, so that inflation rate that StatCan puts out is really an average across over a thousand items that they track every month. They look literally at what these items cost and how they change from one month to the next. And then they, they look at what a typical consumer in Canada spends on different goods. And then they can get a sense of overall for the typical Canadian, what has uh, the price changes of all the individual items meant for you overall. And yeah, that's up 4.8% in December, the highest since 1991. But it turns out it's really being driven by just two items in that you know, 1,200 item basket that they look at. And that's gasoline, something that probably won't come as a surprise to anyone, just seeing what gasoline prices are. But then another one is uh, a kind of imputed item called homeowner's depreciation that we don't actually, none of us actually spend money on. It's really an accounting entry to get a sense of how much our homes have worn out from uh, one month to the next, if you will. And with high home prices, StatCan mechanically measures that to be uh, high values of depreciation. So you're saying when you look at those numbers, all of them, all the things in that basket, it's down to two, according to your calculations, down to two things. The entire reason for why inflation is higher than normal is due to those two things. So at that 4.8% rate that we saw in December, if you take out what is that homeowner's depreciation, a non-cash item that, that no one actually spends, but entirely imputed, and you remu remove gasoline and the, the natural gas prices to heat our homes, so energy, then you're down to under three, you're down to about 2.8 percent inflation. So other prices are still rising. Food is indeed uh, becoming more expensive and is contributing to inflation that we're seeing now. New vehicle purchases are another important one, but those are not why we're seeing inflation rates so much higher than the usual, you know, two, one to three percent range that we typically see. 
We've been talking inflation with Trevor Toom, a professor of economics at the University of Calgary. Gasoline and homeowners depreciation. Two factors in that big number we saw released just last week from December, 5.7%. Without those, Trevor was telling us, the rate would have been closer to something more normal. Uh, and that leads me to my next question, Trevor, which is if that's the case, and we've seen an awful lot of politics going on around inflation, we always do, lots of finger pointing. If that's the case, how much does policy actually make a difference? So th that is the greatest question I think we should be asking ourselves right now, especially as it becomes a more political issue. So let's unpack each of those two components, starting first with gasoline. The, the story there is really quite simple. High global oil prices increase gasoline prices. Now, gasoline prices go up and down for lots of reasons, but the overwhelming majority of what makes them go up and down is oil prices, because that's the most important input into making gasoline. And roughly speaking, every $10 per barrel change in the price of oil, that translates into about a 0.3 percentage point increase in the inflation, which doesn't sound like much, but in recent months, we're seeing oil prices now $30 a barrel above where they were last year, or in November and October and September, $40 a barrel above where it was the previous year. And so this is adding in December a full percentage point to measured inflation. And November, even more. But that's not something that Canadian policy can do much to affect, at least in the short term, because oil prices are this globally traded commodity that goes up and down for all sorts of reasons that a small, relatively small country like Canada can't do much about. And then turning to the other item of homeowners depreciation, that's an interesting one. This is StatsCan trying to get a sense of how much your home wears out, how much of its uh, you know, real value might decline. And they presume that 1.5% of a home's value depreciates each year, just mechanically. And so when home prices rise, as they are in many markets in Canada, that's going to just mechanically increase measured inflation. But again, this here is maybe not a Canadian-specific story. You're seeing housing prices in Canada rising uh, quite a lot this year, uh, but you're seeing on average about an 18% increase in home prices across all developed economies compared to two years ago. In Canada, by comparison, that's 20%. And in the United States, 25%. So home prices everywhere are just going crazy. And it's, uh, you know, may, maybe due to a lot, a lot of factors, but it's not something where it's a, a Canadian government policy that's really driving it. Now, inflation is always something that's used as a weapon against the sitting government if it happens to be uh, to be high. I'm old enough to remember when inflation was, uh, was high way back when. Um, so what would you advise our listeners to be on the lookout for when they hear these claims that, that you know, a government's responsible for something? Because it's easy to blame the party in power. And I'm not trying to defend them. But just mm -hmm. in terms of knowing what you should know, what would your advice be to, to listeners? Because they're going to hear a lot of accusations about why inflation is high. I get, this, I get the idea over the next little while. So I would advise 
um, I guess, a broader view about politics in general, that it's it's very common for governments to claim credit for good developments, even if they really don't have anything to do with it. And it's equally common for opposition parties to blame governments for any bad development, even if they don't have anything to do with it. So that's kind of normal politics, and we should be aware of that. And I think that's really much of what's going on with inflation here. Uh, but with this issue specifically, there is a lot of important things that we should be thinking about here with the inflation numbers. Home prices being high is a real problem for many, anyone who doesn't currently own a home and looking to buy one, especially in Vancouver and Toronto. That's a big problem. And governments ought to be pressured to think about what kind of solutions they could come up with to, um, say, make housing more affordable in those particular markets. So there's a lot of really valuable policy discussions to be had. So I'd uh, caution people not to get distracted by just that headline of inflation unless it's tied to something specific and real. And, and Trevor, one of the interesting points you made uh, in that article again w was that if in fact the inflation or sort of the jump we saw in, in December, if it could be sort of whittled down to two important factors, gasoline and uh, homeowners depreciation, then that may offer, and I'm not going to ask you to predict or get a crystal ball because <laughs> inflation inflation's been a tough one the past 12 years for anyone to predict. Uh, but you see this perhaps going, you know, improving if those, in fact, are the two two main factors that are driving it to to uh, higher than usual or at least higher than comfortable levels. Yeah, you know. So with the caveat that the world is very unpredictable and especially so right now. So I wouldn't want to predict a couple of weeks out into the future, let alone this time next year. But if these are the two drivers and they are driving it right now, if they remain the drivers and if oil prices globally don't continue their really unprecedented increase, then we will see that its contribution to inflation will diminish. And indeed, Markets. So investors are betting on oil to be gradually declining through the balance of, of this year. And if home prices also don't continue to just skyrocket or go through the roof to, to abuse a, a pun there, then that's going to start to dissipate in terms of its contribution to inflation as well. So I think there's a lot of strong reasons to think that inflation by the end of this year will be around normal again. Trevor Toom, it's been uh, fascinating to hear you demystify inflation in such an interesting way. I appreciate your time. I'm sure our listeners do too. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Mm -hmm.